Ask film historians to name the great directors, and invariably they will plumb for the likes of Akira Kurosawa, Alexander Sukharov, Wong Kar Wai, Abbas Kiarostami, or Stanley Kubrick. Which means, besides the proliferation of the letter K, they yield to the idea of the auteur, the romantic notion of a single entity being the creative and organising force in delivering a multi-layered story that is not only the director's own unique vision of the world, but it is filled out with great import. It's a contentious issue that has been argued over for the last 60 years, but it is one that is sustained to this day, if for no other reason than marketing. Posters, trailers, online interviews and all manner of publicity alert us to the latest film from the directors who bought us. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm? But when you get down to the brass tacks of it, the visions of such directors are always subject to the vagaries of just about everything that you and I are subject to in the real world. A reality that, try as we might, we simply cannot control. From the weather, to an actor's spontaneous gesture, to a specific location that turns out to be smaller than we wanted. And so, our carefully designed camera movement is not possible. Yes, we could shoot it on a soundstage, but the budget may not facilitate such a luxury. And all those problems arise because we are filming live action. So why not place an animator as the ultimate auteur? After all, they can control, thereby take complete ownership, of every facet of their fictive world. From the speed and size of a dilating eye, its precise colour, to the way a character's hair blows in the wind. Well, you can make that wind a breeze, or even a hurricane. An animator gets to determine everything. The budget? Well, when you own your own studio, you can even bend that. If that is the case, perhaps we've been wrong all along. And instead of lauding the likes of Elia Kazan, Martin Scorsese and James Cameron, we should be lauding the individual works of Lottie Reiniger, whose Adventures of Prince Ahmed was the first colour animated feature film. One of cinema's greatest achievements, it is available on Blu-ray. Or perhaps we're more familiar with names such as Tex Avery. No, it's duck hunting season. John Lasseter. Buzz Light, your mission log, start at 4072. My ship has run off course en route to Sector 12. I've crash-landed on a strange planet. The impact must have awoken me from hypersleep. Terrain seems a bit unstable. No readout yet if the air is breathable. And there seems to be no sign of intelligent life anywhere. Hello? Or Trey Parker and Matt Stone. I'm nothing. I'm a failure in the eyes of the prophet. Ah! Hey! Dude, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. Go away! Dude, this is my room! Go away, I said! Dad! Tom Cruise won't come out of the closet! But they are all American, and it is crucial to look further afield. And that brings us to Japan and the genius of Heo Miyazaki. Here is Miyazaki in interview from 2010 with Roland Kels at Berkeley University, talking about the role of the director in animation. In Japan, um, it's a normal method uh, to have the director uh, draw the storyboard. Uh, occasionally, there's uh, different people 
uh, different people working on it, uh, somebody who writes, draws a storyboard and somebody who directs the films. But that's not the, um, the usual method. Um, and in fact, it's almost a condition um, to become a director, uh, to be able to draw the storyboard. Uh, so if a, a person can't draw a storyboard, then uh, he'll be thought of as being unnecessary to the production of a film, um, even though he is the director. Director, screenwriter, animator and producer, Miyazaki is also the co-founder of Studio Ghibli, which in the 32 years of its existence has produced an uninterrupted series of highly acclaimed multi-award winning features, as well as worldwide box office successes. And with a career that now spans close to 40 years, it is obvious that Miyazaki has for a long time been doing something right. And perhaps one of those things is collaborating. Of the dozen films Miyazaki has directed, he has worked with producer Toshio Suzuki and editor Takeshi Sayama eight times, and composer Joe Hisayashi, cinematographer Atsushi Okui, and production designer Kazuo Oga six times each. And with the exception of his first feature film, The Castle of Cagliostro, Miyazaki has been the sole writer of all his films, and they are all original screenplays. However, that is not to say that they are not without influence. And for many people, Spirited Away is similar to this story. Alice was beginning to get very tired of sitting by her sister on the bank and of having nothing to do. Once or twice she peeped into the book her sister was reading, but it had no pictures or conversations in it. And what is the use of a book, thought Alice, without pictures or conversation? But only insofar as it focuses on a girl, Chihiro, entering into a very strange world. Shihiro is alone in that realm because her parents have been transformed into pigs and she has to reverse that curse in order to get back home. Which of course brings us into the same realm as this story. Oh, but anyway, Toto, we're home. Home. And this is my room. And you're all here. And I'm not going to leave here ever, ever again. Because I love you all. And, oh, Annie M, there's no place like home. But where Alice's story has long been interpreted on a psychological level, and Dorothy's journey along the yellow brick road has invited mythological comparisons, Spirited Away concerns itself with a much wider variety of issues. When we encounter Chihiro, it is while she is travelling with her parents to a new town, where her father will take up a new job. It's a very typical device to kickstart the plot, because, as far as a young audience is concerned, it is a moment with which they are very familiar they can readily recall the day they encountered a wholly new environment, their first day at school. Fear of the unknown, separation anxiety, anticipation. But no matter what, they all mean an imminent rite of passage. And just like Alice and Dorothy, Shihiro will return a very different girl. And in that time, our world will have changed also. In a seemingly effortless manner, Miyazaki weaves in references as mature and unusual to a children's film as you could ever expect. You have economic chaos signalled by the abandoned amusement park. Then you have environmental disaster, indicated by the polluted river. Then there is materialism, as can be seen when Shihiro is offered but intuitively refuses the gold. Also, the erosion of personal identity, witnessed when Shihiro is renamed Sen. And finally, and most shocking, is an allusion to child trafficking. What else is Shihiro doing in the bathhouse, 
other than being groomed for other work. But the genius of Miyazaki is not just that he wove in those themes, but that he managed to do so in a way that is neither pretentious nor out of place. The fantastical tone of the story is so strong that its wondrous logic excuses, if not demands things to be weird. So weird that you initially accept them at face value, and only on reconsideration do you realise that everything is a metaphor. Which brings us back to the mythological and the psychological realms of Wonderland and Oz. Just like Alice and Dorothy, Chihiro encounters curious creatures, some of whom are friendly, others hostile, and it is part of the challenges Chihiro faces that she must learn to figure out who is what. But sometimes they are not what they seem. Which means in turn, not only do they change, but Chihiro's perception of them changes also. And those transformations are nothing if transcendent. Which inevitably admits, well, it's right there in the title. Here is Miyazaki again, talking about the artists who have influenced his films. Well, I've uh, been influenced by many people, so and I can't really uh, remember exactly what I have taken from other people. Uh, but I am in the uh, realm of um, making entertainment films. Uh, uh, even though I've, I try to break out of the mold or the constraints um, we have um, in terms of uh, uh, that genre. Uh, it's, we're doing totally different types of uh, animation, but John Lasseter of Pixar, Disney, uh, and the um, uh, fellows at Aardman, like Nick, like Nick Park, and Clay Animation. Miyazaki is often described in the West as Japan's answer to Walt Disney, which is to imply that without Disney, there would be no Miyazaki. Despite the declared camaraderie, it is worth examining a profound disparity between Miyazaki's cinema and that of Pixar. Their emotional tones are markedly different. Hollywood cinema has, from its very beginnings, been driven by an almost indomitable optimism. Likewise, moments of fear are fleeting, and whenever experienced by the likes of Nemo, Buzz or Wally, they are quickly neutralised by immense determination. Such determination is what fuels the engine that propels the characters through the story. However, you suspect that if they so much as paused for even a second, they would discover themselves to be like Wally Coyote, out over the edge of the cliff with nothing supporting them other than their own belief that their feet are still touching the ground. Miyazaki's films run at an entirely different emotional temperature. While the images on screen reflect his immense imagination, Miyazaki's sound design, what he wants us to hear, is nowhere near as hectic as that of American animation. Studio Ghibli seems to prefer a quieter strategy. A cluttered soundscape suggests constant external activity, while a quieter one immediately allows moments of internal reflection. So, while much of Pixar's sound and fury brings me only as far as the merchandise on sale in the Disney store, Ghibli's silence suggests an infinity far beyond that material. Mm -hmm. 